Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive, professionally and personally. Hello and welcome to episode 56 of the Habits of Leadership podcast. My name's Dan Hasler from Cut Through Coaching, and joining me today is Holly Ransom. Holly's just written a brand new book called The Leading Edge, in which she aims to help people harness their own potential and lead by asking better questions and breaking through some of the stereotypes and typical biases that often hold us back. Holly was previously identified by the Australian Financial Review as one of Australia's most influential women. She's also been Richard Branson's nominee for Wired Magazine's Smart List of Future Game Changers. She's also been awarded the US Embassy's Eleanor Roosevelt Award for Leadership Excellence. I was able to get my hands on a copy of The Leading Edge and had a good read of it over the past few days. And I'm really looking forward to digging into the book now with Holly. Holly, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Dan. I'm excited to be here. So where in the world are you right now in the middle of this uh, pandemic and, and series of new ver- new versions of the lockdown that Australia's experiencing? Whatever version of lockdown we're up to, 5.0 and then some, I think. I'm a Victorian. That was probably the giveaway, uh, lockdown number five. So yeah, based in uh, Melbourne, I was living in the US until uh, last March when sort of the pandemic started. So I was st- studying over there and as many know, sort of a lot of institutions shut at the point where the pandemic really took hold in 2020. So came back to Australia at that point and then, uh, yeah, I've sort of been uh, with all of us on this journey in uh, in lockdown since then. You were in, in America, I think I'm right in saying, at Harvard on a, a Fulbright scholarship. Is that is that correct? I was. I was lucky enough to be studying a Master of Public Policy at the Kennedy School. So very interesting time to find yourself studying public policy when the world hits a once-in-a-hundred-year event and every government around the world is challenged to respond to it. We see varying degrees of success and uh, and failure, unfortunately, um, uh, across the world. So, yeah, I was studying. So I finished that degree online because campus closed and we kind of went into virtual learning for the last uh, year. Now, for those people who um, might, maybe haven't come across uh, your work or, or your, your story to this point, what I'm going to do is try and bring people into that picture by asking you a question, if you don't mind. And okay, the question I have for you is this. What was more challenging for you? The stuff you learned at circus school? Completing a triathlon, an Ironman triathlon, or interviewing Barack Obama? Uh, you've done your homework. Nobody knows about circus school. That's embarrassing. Um, good question. So, oof, what was the hardest? I mean, it's interesting because I know you've worked with a lot of elite athletes, Dan, and, and I would probably say the as, as an amateur, so someone who had never really thrown their hand at anything, certainly that challenging or intense, I would say the Ironman because it was so many challenges. It was so many days of challenges that felt like they would never end. And it was one of those times in my life I genuinely felt like I had picked a goal that I was continually flirting with failure on. Like it, it felt so out of my grasp so often until I crossed the finish line, to be perfectly honest. And so um, there was always that degree of discomfort and fear, I think, that came with that one. So I think I'd probably pick the Iron Man. And, and if I'm hearing you right, it, it was the more the mental challenges as much as the physical. Because I mean, I think you set yourself you, you set yourself a pretty tight timeline to train for it. I think if uh, 
if I'm right, it, 100 days, was it, or something ridiculous to yeah, train for? I sort of was one of those uh, interesting moments. I was I was at a dinner. I was working uh, in the world of banking at that point in time, and we had a company dinner. I was sitting next to the chief legal counsel, and he proceeded to tell me he'd done like 28 triathlons, including all these Ironmans. And um, no offence to him, he's a great guy, and we've, I've said this to him. Um, you know, he didn't look like the type of guy that could have done a whole heap, heap of Ironmans. Yeah. And I said, oh, you know, I've always wanted to do one of those, but, you know, I've just you know, travel and never had the time. And he immediately called BS. He was like, I've done all of mine while I've worked in this job and I travel four days a week. And so I pulled out my phone and signed up for one and uh, turned out to have a 100-day lead time for that. And I think the only smart thing I did in that whole process, because it was a true hack job of a, a preparatory effort, um, was I hired a coach and I never would have physically been able to do it had I not been guided by someone who knew how much you could load your body and, you know, what mix to do things in and all of that important stuff. Um, so I think uh, w- with someone who really understood the intricacies of that taking care of the physical, I had confidence that I was moving towards that part of the plan properly. But you're right, that is a very long dance with yourself. Like you're not allowed to listen to music or zone out to a podcast or anything like that. It is a very long time with you in your head. Um, yeah. So definitely the mental side. And that's what the athletes and that's what I always remember my coach um, saying, you know, people you talk to had done them before. Your head will give out well before your body does. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's a, re- a really interesting challenge of sort of finding your way through that. So tell me, did, have you written a book based on a dare? Did someone dare you to write a book? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question. I don't, I'm sure people have at various points, but that's not really uh, where the motivation came from from in this moment. I had, as you mentioned, spent some time at Harvard and a big reason for wanting to go and spend that time there was to look at public policy and by extension, public leadership. And one of the things that really struck me when you did the literature review on all the books that kind of exist in the library on public leadership was they were overwhelmingly told from kind of one type of storyteller and one dimension. Like it was typically Um, the story of a white male, uh, often either an academic, a military general, an elite sports coach, or um, like a Jack Welsh type figure. And I just remember thinking, wow, this is a really um, lacking diversity. This is lacking the stories of people I see out there leading every day. And it's certainly lacking the stories of people that we need to see themselves in leadership. Mm -hmm. And we need trying to be the change that they want to see in the world. And so one of the really big reasons for writing this book was to wanting to make a really new contribution to the stories that we share and the people that we hold up as role models when it comes to leadership. So this book's got like 60 case studies in it, 42 different industries, equal gender split, 20 plus countries. And what I love is, I mean, you mentioned people like Obama. People will know some of the names of the people that I've interviewed and, and featured in this book without a doubt, Malcolm Gladwell, Sir Ken Robinson, Susan Cain. But I think the people that people will be talking about afterwards are people they haven't heard of yet. And I'm really excited for those new examples and stories to inspire so many more people to think, wow, if they can do it or wow, if that's what their contribution looks like, maybe that could be mine. Maybe I could do it. And I've read your book. I read it um, over the past few days in preparation for our chat and it's called The Leading Edge. And um, I'm curious as to how you came up with that title, because in there you sort of talk about leading from the edge and, you know, leading at the edge. But can you clarify your thinking around the title, the leading edge? What what are you trying to convey to people who um, are going to pick up this book and are going to dive into it? What's the what's the fundamental message that you're trying to get across? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the 
the main heartbeat of that idea of the leading edge is that the status quo of the way that we're doing things now is not working. And I know that won't be a, a surprise to your listeners to hear. I think in various ways, each and every one of us looks around the world right now, particularly while we're in the midst of lockdowns and goes, are you kidding? Is this as good as it gets? Is this really the way that we are leading uh, living our one precious life, leading our precious world. You know, whether we're talking about climate change, the resolution to the pandemic, you know, raising up the next generation from an education perspective, you can cut it in so many different ways. And so for me, it was this want to talk about people who are at the leading edge of a new way. Because um, I think when we talk about the edge, when we talk particularly about a leading edge, it's that idea of um, a progressive new approach. It's new thinking. It's a different way of putting one and one together. Um, and that was what I really wanted to showcase in this book, while at the same time giving people the tools to find their own um, and to think about how they they sharpen the way that they're showing up in the world or how they apply their purpose differently or how they think about how they architect the talents and skills that they've got to, to have a, um, a more meaningful uh, impact than the one they might be having now. So for me, that was the real, really the, the heartbeat. It was wanting to push people to go the comfort zone of the way we're doing things right now or the, the status quo of the norm at the minute clearly isn't working. It's not serving us, if we're honest, because we look at all the disengagement data about work, we look at burnout, we look at so many statistics about where we're at individually or that collective of what we know that represents individually, just as much as we know when it comes to progress on problems, we're not having the cut through that we'd like to see. And so that's really what the book's about, a different way. And so some of those different ways, uh, as you say, you, you, you know, you, there are the, 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 the names that people will have heard of. And then there's the, I think you talk about the people who you, you really, their names that people won't forget, you know, as a result mm. of reading those stories. I thought if we could sort of dig into some of those themes, which, uh, come through the book or, or certainly they, they came through for me you know like the, obviously I think everyone reads a book slightly differently and, and different themes will, will stick with them one of the things which I'm really interested in and, and this comes through in the work I do with people is this idea of before we worry about you know leading other people you, you, you focus in on this idea of leading yourself and, and understanding mm. yourself and it, it's an interesting one because in my work, it's one of those things when you say that to someone, they, their eyes kind of glaze over a little bit because they, they take so much in their life for granted and they just, well, this is the way it is, mate. Um, but when you work with people and you work with countless, you know, big organizations and, and people who are successful in their lives by many metrics, talk to me a little bit about what you mean when you're sitting across from someone and, and you want to get them to do some work on themselves about what it means to show up in the world and, and, and what it means to lead themselves before they worry about anyone else they're trying to get on board with something. Yeah, and I'm so glad that part of the book resonated for you um, because those who, who are listening that may not have picked up a copy yet, the, the book's divided intentionally into two. So it starts with, as Dan uh, mentioned there, kind of that focusing on leading yourself with the whole premise being until you can lead yourself, you can't lead others. Um, and it, I think there's, a, I mean, for me, the moment, and I tell the story in the book where this really hit, though I didn't understand it for a long time after I heard the line was, I know you've worked with His Holiness as well. And uh, he said this line when I was fortunate enough to meet him as a 20 year old, where um, he said, you know, if, if we're not at peace with ourselves, we will never be able to be at peace with others. And it was this moment, I knew it was profound enough to write it down. And it wasn't till a long time after, and I think with a lot more kind of experience and vantage points that I started to really understand that piece where it's true you know if we're not uh, aligned and able to connect into our own purpose how can we help others find purpose how can we tap into a collective purpose um, if we don't know how to authentically own our own story 
how can we tell a story in a way that will authentically connect with others and inspire them to follow us? You know, it's this, and I think sometimes one of the things I would observe is I think we've we've lost that sense of agency and responsibility that we have. I mean, ultimately, our companies, communities, countries are a collection of individuals. If we do this stuff better ourselves, we give ourselves the capability to do it better in collaboration and connection with others. Mm. And so that's really, for me, where it starts from. And, and the other flip of that is people often ask me when you interview some of these incredible high-profile individuals, what's one of the things that strikes you? And don't get me wrong, I could give you so many commonalities about their intelligence, which is without question, and the extent to which they, um, you know, are, are courageous, which is absolutely true. But I think one of the most overwhelming things for being in their presence is the clear security they have in their sense of self and the work that they've done to interrogate who they are, what they believe in, um, why they're on this planet and how they intend to try and put their their time on this planet to work. It is universal amongst all of them. And so for me, that was also one of the reasons when I was reflecting on what's, what is a commonality amongst these leaders that I see as being at the edge and making a really significant contribution in their respective fields, it is that piece they've done the work first. Mm. And, and do you think that's somewhat left to chance? Like are there some people who that that's mm. just happened for Um or, or, or is it, let me put it another way, is there something missing in the way we think about education or the way we think uh, about developing people, generally completely. speaking, and I can say that either at school or through into our, our companies or organisations, teams, whatever they might be, is, this, is there something missing around the who am I and why <laughs> side of things? Yeah, no, definitely. It's a really great question because one of the passions for me is how we democratise access to leadership development. Um, we, I definitely think there is far too much left up to chance uh, and, and often by extension privilege in terms of how chance mm. distributes itself, right, where if you're lucky enough to go to the good school, um, as I was, don't get me wrong, if you're lucky enough to go to a great university, as I was, absolutely, I'm, I'm not trying to um, not acknowledge my own privilege here, or we're not lucky enough to be in companies that invest in leadership development, not all of us get access to these tools and capabilities. And part of what I wanted to do in this book is go, you know, if, if at all it is, is picking up a resource, it, it, go to your local library, you don't even have to buy the thing or get get the free download on, on uh, Audible or something like that. But these tools, if we could put them in the hands of more people, imagine what good we could do. And imagine if we got more people believing in their ability to be a leader. Because I think to your extension of your question as well, it's not just who we give the tools to, it's who we message to about you are a leader. And there's something so powerful about the stories that we hear and the relationship we're told to have with those stories. And again, that's part of why I wanted to change the, the narrative, because if we've got 50% of the population, women, not being told, hey, you're a leader from a young age, seeing stories, reading stories where female leaders are what they're absorbing and learning from or leaders of their cultural background or whatever it may be, then we're missing out on an enormous contribution of people who are never thinking they're part of the leadership equation. So I think you're right. We, we could definitely do with this, not only different stories in our schooling system and more broadly in our in our public, our media has still got a long way to go too, but also actually access to these skills and learning in the same way we'd give it to numeracy and literacy. So if we're talking about leading ourselves and, you know, and, and let's say that these opportunities are out there, the narrative shifts, let, let's say that, you know, we make the these shifts and, and, and it happens. Part of that is, I guess, reconciling that we're all, just by virtue of being human, there are going to be some things that despite 
whatever development we have, whatever support we have around us, whatever opportunities we have, privilege, etc. There are always, just by virtue of being human, there are going to be things which we're not happy with or we're not, mm-hmm. we're ashamed of, we're embarrassed by, uh, we're un- we, we might suffer imposter syndrome around things, whatever it might be. And one of the things which came through was this idea of um, self-acceptance that you speak about. And what I really appreciated when you spoke about that was this idea of you don't just wake up one day and decide, oh, I'm sweet. <laughs> and and that's <laughs> it. You know, it, you, you speak about it being, you know, like a self-acceptance being this, this journey rather than a, a, a destination. And I'm wondering, you know, without perhaps being too insensitive about this, I'm wondering um, as a, as a, you know, as you've gone on your journey, I'd imagine there'd be plenty of times when you might have had some pushback or some condescension from, I don't even know if that's a (laughs) word, but you know, some condescending, um, you know, older white males going, come on, who, you know, what are you going to, what are you going to share? And I'm wondering to what extent that might impact your sense of self in in that time, maybe now, Mm -hmm. you know, as you say, on this journey, it's, it's being developed. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think what I try and share through the book is the, the very personal aspect of that for me in the sense of I've been very lucky to have some great mentors guiding me through that because I think uh, as someone who found themselves in leadership roles, which, you know, it sounds silly because, you know, um, originally it was at a local town level and then, you know, at a city level, but certainly felt like they were playing out in public uh, at a very young age. It was something that there was a lot of commentary from the get-go. There were people who would share their opinions. There were people that would tell me I was an idiot. Um, You know, there was a lot of vocal pushback, particularly when I got involved with organisations like Rotary where, you know, you were going in and you were dealing with a demographic that were really different um, to me as a a 20-something female um, who would quite vocally, and it was actually quite helpful when people vocalised it, so at least you had the opportunity to respond to it, would say, what on earth could you know? You know, they'd, they'd call you a young upstart. What do you, you, you know, what do you think you're doing here? Um, what could a 20-something-year-old girl possibly tell me about leadership or service or something like that? Um, and part of that, you know, there's there's two things that, I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book that a mentor of mine, John, taught me very early, he he plonked a dice down in the middle of the table and he asked me one day what I could see and I sort of wasn't quite sure what game John was playing at and so I said a dice and he said, yeah, but be more specific and I think I said, you know, I can see a six and he said, well, I can see a one, which one of us is right? And I said, you know, I looked at him kind of silly and, you know, I said, don't be ridiculous, we're both right. And he said to me, spot on. And he said, one of the things I want you to realize, and it was a really great lesson. I don't know whether he chose to teach me at that point in time for that exact reason that I felt like every week I was going into sorts of situations where I was seeing the world as a six and someone else was seeing it as a one. Um, But he said, you know, the first thing I want you to remember is that yours is never the only perspective. Um, So it's really important that you're open to making sure you try and get as many perspectives to bear on an issue as you can. The second thing, and the thing I particularly, I think, needed to hear at that point in my life is just because um, never, never like doubt or not give weight to your own opinion just by virtue of the fact there are others. Yours is no less valid because you can see a six and someone else could see a one. And I think for me, you know, that was a, a helpful way of acknowledging pushback. I think I've come to a view that continue evolves and it is a bit circumstantial, but there are definitely people that still have that view about me. Um, I'm, I'm sure that that's, um, that's present, that's there. I, I hear it every now and again. I'm sure it's a lot less present in, uh, sorry, a lot less visible. I'm sure there's lots of it behind my back. But I think there's the kind of acknowledgement for me that that's, 
that's part of having an opinion. That's part of showing up. And so one of the things you just have to learn to cope with and develop your own strategies and they're never watertight. You need, you know, there are moments where they slip through and hit the keeper and there are moments where you need to recalibrate them because they're not working for the environment you find yourselves in. But you've just got to be okay with yourself and do that work. You've got to surround yourself with people who can provide that support and reassurance and you've got to develop those skills for when, people do try and rock you from your core. How do you deal with it? And how do you not let yourself be destabilized? Mm. At the same time, how do you always make sure that you're open for feedback? Um, Because that is part of growth and learning. You know, there's a lot that I look back now in my 20s about how I showed up and how I advocated that I cringe at. And I go, oh, that was naive. Oh, I could have done that differently. But that was part of the learning curve I needed to go on. And if I hadn't put myself out there and done learning, um, you know, if I'd stayed quiet or not showed up or waited till it was perfect, uh, or I had all the ducks lining up, I never would have gotten out of bed. I never would have done it. I probably still wouldn't have done it yet. You talk about that, you know, move be- or, you know, act before you're ready or, you know, because if you mm-hmm. wait until you're ready, the moment will have passed. I'm wondering how you can reconcile that without uh, kind of, a, you know, you want to go before you're ready, but how do you reconcile that with having done the work to be, mm-hmm. um, to be a, um, a va- you know, to earn the right, if for want of a better word, to, to have that opinion um, mm-hmm. and, and to sort of, downplay perhaps that sense of uh, imposter syndrome or whatever how do you balance that how do you know when you're ready that you're not ready if you're ready (laughs) (laughs) I don't quite know how that works but you know what I'm trying to say and you know it's one of the things I acknowledge when we start the chapter on preparation discipline that I I acknowledge the inherent tension I think we've got to hold that tension between the chapter that talks all about this idea of starting before you're ready and the one that says that doesn't excuse you for not doing the work that doesn't mean lazy right? That means prepared to go out there with an embryonic idea and seek feedback. That means the opportunity to collaborate openly early and take views on board. And I think that's probably one of the things that I've embraced. Like I will do the work to get a hypothesis shaped up. I think part of it's in the tone and the way in which we approach starting. If we're going to start as though we've got it all figured out and here we go and we're going to impose our idea on others, then that's problematic. If we're going to start before we're ready and we're going to say, hey, I've got an idea and I'd love to get your feedback or, hey, I've been thinking about something. Do you reckon we could have a go? Or I'm going to pilot this and see if there's something in it. And if I get a good response, then I might rapidly iterate it. That's what we're talking about. We're just talking about kind of lowering lowering the barrier to entry, taking on feedback and opinion earlier. And I think approaching that process with humility and curiosity, like that's the goal for me in that process. But it doesn't mean... I'm going to waste people's time. It doesn't mean I'm not going to have thought through something deeply. I think those two things absolutely coexist, but I think particularly with how dynamic our world's moving now, and we give a lot of examples of entrepreneurs who I think are one of the best categories of people to look at this because their learning cycle is often quite visible. The faster you can get out there and engage with customer feedback, the faster you can start getting people testing and playing and pulling at the parameters, the faster you learn, the faster you find your blind spots, and the faster you can actually develop up a more holistic concept or approach. And, and I think that's really what we're encouraging there. That's certainly what I, I try to practice. I mean, the, the process of another one of these cycles at the moment. And I think it is part of that openness to go on that learning, unlearning, relearning journey. Um, so they kind of sit in tension for me. It's like you've got something you want to test. You've got to find the right people to test it with. Who's going to add value to that process? Who's it helpful to bring into that process early? Who's maybe it not? Um, and then how do you go um, on that journey of just rapidly cycling through that mm. velocity of think, conversations? Yeah, and I think the word you use sort of differentiates between the kind of person who you'd like to um, 
see operate in that way and those that don't i mean there are plenty of people who start before they're ready and, and have no humility right and absolutely and and they're dreadful to be around typically. So I think- There are um, also plenty of processes where you're very grateful that they don't start before they're ready, you know, and I, I'm yeah. not applying this as can't blanche, but even when we're taking the view of something that say needs to be very stable and secure, we can still be off here while that's running as it is, experimenting in a different pilot with how we might do it better. And we might be starting with an embryonic idea there and testing it with the safety of a parameter of an experiment and then bringing that knowledge to bear on how we improve the process, we ne really need to run like clockwork better. So um, I think, it, you know, it's very easy to take these things to their extremes, but I think in, for everyone there's a nugget of, of learning in that. Yeah, so if you were working with, um, say, a you know, a, a company, a, a, an organisation that was really quite focused on results, so that mm -hmm. could be dollars for a business it could be in education it could be outcomes for students or whatnot. yeah for sure how do you encourage this um mindset or this um culture of play or <laughs> as you say curiosity experimenting hypothesizing how do you how do you encourage that in an environment which might be not only results focused but especially in education i'm thinking here compounded by t you know time pressures you know we've mm -hmm. only got x amount of days in the week, hours in the day, weeks in the term. What are, what are some ideas or, or, or ways of thinking where you can go to a group and say, hey, we, I get all this, I get, I get mm -hmm. your constraints, but over here there's a potential to be doing something really interesting. How do, you, how do you talk about that? How do you bring them into that, that picture? I think you almost touched on the start of it there in the way that you framed the question, which is part of it is kind of triaging the environment and going where is the part of the puzzle here that makes most sense for us to play. Now, if you're working with an environment that's cynical or that's results-driven to the point where there's going to be a real reluctance to mess with the balance of things as they are or things like that, I think one of your most obvious areas to play with is any part that involves creativity, brainstorming, innovation, new. Now, in a school context, that could be a subject that is around commerce, for example, and the whole idea that kids are learning entrepreneurial skills in that class. Well, that would be what I would hope a business class would be teaching some of the basics to, you know, uh, um, kids nowadays versus reading a textbook uh, definition of what a business is and learning how to categorise different organisational structures. So um, something like that might be the opportunity where the the actual play process comes in, this is going to sound like a, uh, a wanky term here, but pedagogy not the content of what we're teaching, but how we're doing the teaching. So how, for example, instead of teaching them about a business, do we create a term where they have to start one? Or how in a drama class do we, you know, uh, you know, uh, arts and culture class be using improv as an element of versus reading a play and doing scripted work, this idea of throwing kids into situations that are uncomfortable and allow for that play element. In a business context, for me, it's always about those, the space that we get when we do kind of the blue ocean strategy work. So how are we bringing play creativity, you know, and I talked through a number of the strategies that different, you know, world-leading companies use in this regard, um, in those areas where we know that we're thinking on, we're giving ourselves that little bit more licence. So there's an openness amongst leaders, even in very results-driven cultures, to go, we know that keeping doing the things we've always done falls behind in the current world. The only way that we keep moving forward is if we keep innovating, we keep going for the gap, we keep saying what's next, where are we heading? So I think whenever we're talking about innovation and growth agendas, we get that licence to play in that area. And then it's really cultural. I mean, sometimes for me it's about 
How do you take evidence to those leaders of companies that are getting proven results using these different approaches? So they're actually understanding that this is not guinea pigging. This has been proven and established. This can help drive results versus being seen as an antithesis to results. Sometimes it's about just picking the right approach to try first. So they have a go, they see the benefit, then they're prepared to kind of expand and think about a broader scope. So it is quite hard to say that there's one single approach, but trying to find a way to pick what I would describe as the lower hanging fruit or the part of the agenda that's more open to a conversation or the leader that's more open to the conversation about doing it differently, proving that up and then taking those results to a broader conversation around where else could this add value? What if we scaled this? What if we did this differently in other parts of the business or the school? That for me would be where I would start. I'm interested in in how do the best and that, again, subjective term, how do the most effective in, in your thinking <laughs> leaders, how do they get people to follow, if that's the right word, or, mm. or buy in or get on the bus or contribute to a cause that's bigger than the individual? What are, what are those common things that, that you see them do? Yeah, it's a, it's a really great question. I think that's one that we're asking ourselves more and more in this present day. And, and one of the observations I make in the book is I think, you know, we're well past the tipping point, but we're certainly at a point where leadership has moved from a push culture where we kind of had command and control structures that worked really well in a hierarchy model to a much flatter version of leadership where we see this in even the percentage of the population that are freelancing or doing their own thing. We've got a much looser relationship with our people before. They have much more options. The globalised world mean they can move and change with a, a degree of flexibility that previous generations certainly didn't have. And so one of the things that I think is, is changing a lot is that we've now got this pull culture. We've got to pull people to follow us. And in order to do that, we need to understand well, why do people follow? Um, and one of the big reasons that we know people follow is when there's a sense of an ability to believe in a purpose. People get out of bed because something lights them up. And so one of our biggest responsibilities to begin with as a leader is once we've learned how to connect with our own why and our own purpose is how do we tell the story of what we're doing uh, as an organisation through the lens of a why? Why should I come to work? Why is it that what we do matters? Why do we get out of bed every day? And the ability to create a really powerful and compelling why I think is a big part of it. And to do it in a way and this is one of the things we touch about in the book, I think we've, we've seen this language out of uh, Simon Sinek's TED Talk really launching it. One of the things I think we've missed in the nuance of the conversation is we can't just project our why onto others. We, we can and it will stick with some, but if we're going to create a really compelling vision that's going to move a workforce or a community, we've got to be able to do it in a way that connects with other people's why. So how do we help them join the dots between what they're driven by and what matters to them and, and why we're doing what we're doing as a, as a collective? I think that's really important. I think the second thing in terms of how you motivate people to follow is that that's then backed up with action. And this is one of the big things I think we are seeing a lot more criticism coming to bear on organisations and leaders for um, in this kind of heightened corporate social responsibility ESG conversation that's going on around the world. We've seen a lot of platitudes and promises for a really long time. And now we're seeing a much bigger conversation and a lot more criticism and accountability on greenwashing, rainbow washing, you know, all these examples of people who've said the thing on DNI and then 12 months later they've taken none of the action and spent none of the money they promised to spend. So I think there's this big piece that's coming to bear now on not just your why, but the how, the values that you anchor it in, and being a leader that follows through on what they say they're going to do. So making sure we're getting our own house in order. When we make a promise, we follow through. But I think there's this 
um, increasing accountability. We've talked for a long time about the authenticity of a leader. And I think we've, we, my sense in how we had that conversation over the last decade has predominantly been about the authenticity of story. And that's really important. But I think now we're seeing a lot more authenticity of action and behaviour come into the conversation. So I think that's an evolution at the moment. And I, I think they're some of the things that leaders need to be really cognizant of. When you talk about um, authenticity there, and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, the, the more people we're trying to reach with this, then the more diverse perspectives we need in order to communicate an authentic story. Otherwise, it's just a story that's, I mean, it might be authentic to me, but it's not mm. going to communicate, you know, it's not going to engage and, and reach. How hard, over and above just being a, a decent human being, how hard should leaders work to broaden their understanding of diverse issues rather than just putting the the blinkers on and going I don't get that you know I'll never get that it's not my generation I guess two mm. questions how hard should they work and mm. how hard is it actually to <laughs> oh good question uh how hard should they work hard um and the thing is as well I think we just need to reframe the idea that it's hard um, because I think we don't do hard things and, or, or some of us don't, or some of us have certain categories of hard and they're hard that we feel more comfortable in. We feel, uh, comfortable running at hard targets. We feel comfortable running at stretch goals, but we don't feel comfortable being in conversations where we might be made to feel uneasy or we don't really know what question to ask. And it's, it's a real, um, really important area that I try and explore a little bit in the chapter on fear where I think if we're really honest with ourselves, that's often the fear we're talking about. It's that vulnerability um, that we need to really catch ourselves on and go, we need to be leaning into those things that we don't feel all that comfortable about. But I, I want to challenge leaders listening to this to say, I don't think we can absolve our individual responsibility. I think we need to reclaim agency on this and go, don't get me wrong, it's so important that this architects into a broader organisation, community, country approach to diversity and inclusion. We're not going to get anywhere at a, at a broad level if we don't have that. But we need to reflect back on ourselves and go, actually, how diverse are the five people I spend the most time around? Take in our professional capacity. When you're soundboarding something, when you're collaborating, how diverse are the group of people that you're reaching out to to, to throw ideas around with? And can it start as simply as reaching out to a colleague that comes from a different uh, line of the business, that comes from a different gender, generation, and saying, hey, I've got something I'm working through at the moment. I'd just really love to talk it through with you. Um, and having a conversation where you invite them to add value to something that you're doing and you offer to add value back too. And it starts as simply as a dialogue or it starts as simply as, hey, um, I really feel like I, I probably haven't got enough of a sense of what it's like to be an employee who is, you know, African-American or um, of a millennial generation or of baby boomer generation or whatever it might be in our workforce, I'd love to just have a half an hour coffee. Could we talk about it? Um, and I think it starts with going on these conversations where we come from a disposition of being curious and we listen, we don't talk. And, and that would be my biggest encouragement to leaders is that it starts there. And I think when we start there, it becomes that little bit easier. It doesn't mean we're absolved the responsibility of then to do something with what we hear, but I think it's then it's um, you know to your question around how hard is it? Um, it can be hard if we go about it the wrong way. And one of the things I think is really important with everything that's hard or that we find difficult or we don't know how to wake our make our way through is we find a way to start small but start now. And so for everyone listening who is perhaps reflecting um, and taking that moment moment of honest reflection and going, I probably could do a bit better. 
Uh, I think if that's something you can reflect on now, if you can make a commitment to make one new approach in the next week and have one new listening conversation and then think about what's the commitment you're going to make to do that with some degree of regularity and that you're going to be more mindful the next time the meeting invite goes out. Have we got diversity in this room? Who else could we benefit from the perspective of? If those two things become the basic start to the accountability and then we evolve from there, that's a good start. And that's a start that each and every one of us can take. As we come to the close in, um, one of the questions that you, it, it comes up right towards the end of the book. It's sort of um, this idea of, you know, what's a question you're left thinking about? And what I'm wondering, Holly, is that after going through the process of researching, writing, and then meticulously editing um, a book, you know, which it's a sizable book, there's a lot of stuff in there. I'm wondering after that whole process, and obviously there's the excitement of the release and wondering how it's going to be um, received, but I'm wondering what kind of questions you're left with now as a result of that process and how that perhaps is informing the next thing you're going to jump into before you're ready. Yeah, I love that. Uh, So my headspace is very much in how many people will be up for leading at the edge? So what what sort of resonance will there be and preparedness to take on some of the ideas in uh, this book? Because it's a lot easier to be a status quo leader. It's safe. It's comfortable. We know how to do it. um, But it's absolutely not moving the world forward. It's absolutely not going to step us towards solving some of the challenges that are before us. So I'm very interested in how many people will step into that challenge of being the change that they want to see in the world and becoming the leader that the world needs them to be. And I think by extension of that, I'm acutely aware that um, as pragmatic as I've tried to make the book and, and having read it, Dan, you'll know that there's lots of kind of exercises and suggestions yeah. and food for thought that's scattered through every chapter. So you can think about, okay, this is an idea, but here's an idea of how I could start doing something with this idea. My other question is what more do people need as a support structure in order to do this? So what else do we need um, to bring the book to life and to help a community of people who want to take this on um, to use the tools, to feel supported, to have a sense of community and camaraderie, to be able to continually learn and exchange? Because as I say, this book is not in any way professed to be like a sermon from the mount or a a sum total collective of leadership. It's it's designed to be like your favourite recipe where you, you make it, you try it on, you go, oh, I love it, but I want to add two tablespoons of honey or throw in a handful of raisins or whatever people want to do, right? So they're the big questions for me is how many people are up for it and what more can I contribute to giving them to support them in applying this and being the change that they want to see in the world? So I know that not only is the book out, but you've got a load of other things sort of happening in and around it, different newsletters that come out at different times of the week, Mondays and Fridays. If people are listening and they're going, okay, not only do I want the book, but I need to know more about Holly's work, what's the best way that people can, um, can connect with you? Yeah, look, you can find me on any social media platform. So please come and say hi. Um, would love to hear, you know, what this conversation with Dan and I is, has sparked for you. So feel free to reach out on Twitter or on LinkedIn or on Instagram, whatever. Um, but also you can head to hollyransom.com. As Dan mentioned, I've got a Love Mondays newsletter that comes out to positively try and punctuate your Monday morning, a quick, you know, easy three-minute read, and then an Easy Tiger, uh, one that goes out on Fridays that's meant to be more of a um, a sustainability piece, trying to kind of go deep, be a jungle gym for active minds where we sort of reposition what the weekend can be in the, the reflective um, 
way that we can use that time and, and the tools and inspiration we can give to that. So please feel free to sign up for those um, and be a part of those conversations too. But um, yeah, we'd love to continue the conversation however people would like to. Well, um, thank you so much for your time, Holly. All the best um, with the book release. I'm sure it's going to go gangbusters. And um, more more importantly than that, though, all the best for lockdown 5.0 and, <laughs> and, and staying, you know, somewhat sane as it happens, you know, however this, however long it goes. But um, yeah, all the best. And uh, I look forward to uh, seeing how the book's received. Thank you, Dan. And thank you so much for your incredibly thoughtful questions. You're the um, the first person interview who's read the whole book. So it was so fun getting to hear what different topics had resonated for you. So thank you for all, um, all of your work in preparing for it as well. No worries. Thank you. Take care. As we always say, if you found that conversation worthwhile, then perhaps someone you know would find it worthwhile. So please feel free to share this conversation as far and as wide as you can. Also, please take a moment to leave a rating on the podcast or maybe even comment on the podcast. And of course, make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast wherever you listen. If you'd like to find out more about our work, then head over to habitsofleadership.com, where if you click on the podcast page, you can also leave a question for us for an upcoming Q&A, or perhaps even make suggestions for who you'd like to hear on the podcast. But until our next episode, thank you so much for tuning in. Take care, take it easy.